Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we examine topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from my home on stolen Lenape lands, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. If you're living in the United States like I am, and you're not living on a reservation, you spend your days moving from one colonized space to another. There's no way around that, which means that if you're not a person with an indigenous ancestral history, and your ancestors weren't brought to this country in slave ships, you're profiting from racial genocide. If we go back to sort of the inception of what America is, right, of stolen land and stolen labor. That was Morgan Ridgway. I'll let them tell you about themselves. I'm Black in Nanakote, Lang Lenape. The Lenape people, our homelands are New Jersey, New York City, Eastern Pennsylvania, and the majority of Delaware. So it's a pretty large territory. And growing up in Philadelphia, that means I also grew up in our homelands. So my family has been in New Jersey and Delaware for the, you know, six, seven generations. And so I have a certain attachment to where I come from and a kind of deep knowledge that goes back generations. I'm very fortunate to have that because I know a lot of people for a bunch of different reasons don't have those experiences. Either they had been removed, there's histories of violence, there's histories and presence of racism and, and all sorts of things that prevent people from knowing who they are. In this two-part episode, you'll hear from six people, five of them indigenous. You'll hear about the deep cultural ties and rich ancestral histories that aren't told when only the oppressor's side of the story is put forward. In this first segment, we'll look at invaders' attempts to annihilate indigenous people, spirituality, culture, and thought. We'll reflect on the direct connections between American individualism and the decimation of natural resources. The intention of this episode isn't to shame anyone. It's to make visible what has been deliberately invisibilized in the hopes that the truth will inspire you, the listener, to rethink some of what you may think you know. In part two, next week, we'll be exploring ways to appreciate without appropriating from those who came before and shining light on some of the indigenous teachings that, if adopted and internalized by more people, could be incredibly reparative to this land and all its occupants. But before that, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. Everything you think you know about indigenous people, drop it and start over again. Because it's easier for you to confirm the accurate stuff than it is to winnow out all the bullshit, all the lies. That was Simon Moya Smith, an enrolled citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. Simon is a prolific freelance journalist, an adjunct professor, and the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. I think that if people really take the time to do the homework, they will be really surprised how much that they have been conditioned and indoctrinated to not see Indigenous people and even just not see the truth. When I was in elementary, middle, and high school, I was taught a version of history that was a narrative of constant forward progress, settler grit, and determination. It went something like this. The pilgrims, fueled by dreams of a better life and freedom from oppression, set out to find a new world, and their ingenuity has made America the best place on earth. And as Simon put it, it was bullshit. 
lot of the lies are perpetuated to keep this, you know, little pretty flowery image of the United States and its founding, quote unquote, founding, right? And so we also have to look at the language that we use. It wasn't founded and these aren't settlers. These aren't colonists. They're invaders. You first have to invade a territory before you can settle, before you can colonize. But you see how conveniently they jumped straight to the nice little flowery, you know, easily to consume word of colonist and settler. No, they invaded indigenous territories. And through that invasion, it was both violent, physically violent, but also they were voluntarily spreading disease. It was sobering to interview Simon during a time when the COVID-19 pandemic was decimating indigenous populations at disproportionately high rates, just a few days before what's known in the East as the National Day of Mourning, and in the West as Unthanksgiving. But before we delve into all of that and more, I first want to provide the space for those I interviewed to introduce themselves. We'll start with Simon. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. What I do is I attempt to raise awareness of issues that are facing our communities, whether that's on or off the reservation, but also bring an indigenous lens to topics that maybe don't have a, a specific indigenous tie. I try to bring light to things that affect the communities you know, murder to missing indigenous women, the destruction of um, the land and the water through these oil and gas conglomerates, but also dehumanization in the form of things like mascots and Thanksgiving. So basically, one of my friends called me a bullshit hunter. Charlene Teeters. I'm a Spokane tribal member. So I grew up in Spokane, Washington. The city of Spokane is built on our old village site. The Spokane Reservation is about 57 miles away between the two rivers, between the Columbia and the Spokane River. I was lucky in that I had very knowledgeable members in my own family, my Spokane tribal side. So I'm somebody who knows and very connected to my Spokane tribal history. Charlene is an artist, an educator, and a lecturer whose paintings and installations have been featured in numerous collections and exhibitions. As the former dean of the Institute of American Indian Arts, she spent much of her academic career working to ensure the education of future tribal leaders, innovators, and artists. These days, as she prepares to relocate to the Spokane Reservation, she remains a tireless advocate for future generations, and she uses her art as a catalyst for activism. Here's Tessa McLean. I am First Nations. I'm from uh, Penemutang First Nation. I'm Ojibwe. Tessa is a community planner with a multidisciplinary background, an expert in sustainable energy practices and environmental justice. She brings indigenous knowledge, subject matter expertise, technical skills, and industry experience to community planning initiatives. She is also deeply committed to raising awareness about the plight of missing, murdered, and trafficked indigenous women. Here's Jacqueline Russell. I want to first, I guess, like in that, um, grounding in who I am as a Diné or Navajo person, like just want to start by sharing my clan. So So 
In my culture, the name that we call ourselves in my community is Dine. And it translates into the people. The name that was given to us by the Spanish colonizers was Navajo. So that's the term that's most and more popularly known. And so I grew up on the Navajo Reservation in the northeastern part of Arizona in a family that really, that I'm so grateful for because it was a family that really promoted such a strong understanding of our cultural practices and belonging. And so part of that way of knowing that I've come to understand as being a Dina person includes our kinship system, our relationship system to each other, and that involves our clan system. So I introduced myself saying my name in English, but also, and more importantly, I shared my clan. So I am of the Red Running Into the Water people. That's my mother's clan. And I'm born for my father's clan, which is the Towering House people. My paternal grandfather's clan was the Saltwater clan. And my paternal grandfather is actually was, I should say, both German and Scottish. And so my last name is actually German. I'm from the communities traditionally of Lukachukai and Round Rock, Arizona. And we believe our clan system is really integral to our understanding our relationships to each other. My work is actually really grounded in what I like to call like radical kinship. Like the root of our kinship system is our relationality to each other. But in that relationality is the responsibility that we have to each other. Jacqueline is the president of Grown Up Navajo, the co-founder of Native Women Lead, a writer, a curator, a coach, and a cultural equity and justice consultant. She was the inaugural recipient of the Arizona Humanities Rising Star Award and has been named one of Phoenix's 100 Creatives You Should Know. Here's Morgan Ridgeway again. I'm Black and Nanakote Lenglenape. Growing up the way that I did, I know very intimately how important it is to know who you are and where you come from. Morgan is a PhD candidate with graduate minors in queer and indigenous studies whose research focuses on multi-tribal communities, decolonization strategies, and queer indigenous theory. They are also an artist who utilizes poetry, creative nonfiction, dance, and mixed media in order to disrupt linear, non-inclusive modalities of history telling and to inspire themselves and others to reimagine what's possible. Earlier, I mentioned that this episode would incorporate the voice of one non-Indigenous person. Here she is. My name is Fern, like the plant. My middle name is which is a rainbow in Hawaiian, and my last name is Holland, like the country. I was born and raised on Kauai, but I have no Native Hawaiian blood. Since receiving her Bachelor of Science with triple majors in wildlife management, environmental science, and marine biology, Fern has worked as an environmental scientist and ecological consultant. She was instrumental in the development and passing of Bill 2491, a bill which regulates the agrochemical industry. You've likely seen her if you've watched the well-known documentary, Poisoning Paradise. Each of the people you'll hear today sees their individual identity as being inextricably linked to their community, culture, and land. I come from a mother who's originally from New York, immigrant, 
And my father is actually Australian. And on my Australian side, I'm Scottish, English, and Irish mostly. I would have been seventh generation Australian born, but I was born here. And then on my mom's side, I'm Sicilian, Norwegian, and Irish immigrants to New York. I come from prisoners that were sent to Australia and Irish famine orphans, you know, like, so I, I come from literally from a 15 year old girl was the, um, you know, Mary O'Day who was sent to Australia as an Irish famine orphan at like 14 years old. And she was a poor Irish and they, they sent 4,000 women to increase the women in the colonies to marry prisoners and stuff, you know? So I learned a lot about on my Scottish side was high, likely Highland Scottish political prisoners that were sent away Maybe this is where my <laughs> this is where my political upheaval and activism comes from. I can answer that question about what my genealogy is because I spent a, a long time slowly piecing together the stories of who my ancestors were. My dad passed away without ever knowing who his father was, and with really no idea of, of his you know how Australian are we? Like, you know we didn't really know. He didn't know. And on my mom's side, I, we kind of knew what we were, but I recently was inspired by some of my Native Hawaiian friends that can chant back generations and generations of their ancestry to like understand like why don't white people know that like I don't know where I come from. She's right a lot of white people don't know where they come from and in my opinion that's a problem. Separation from the history of white supremacy is one of the mechanisms that perpetrates and perpetuates anti-indigenous and anti-black racism. The sense that individuals have no relationship with the past creates the illusion of separation. It's traumatizing people and the planet. As an environmental scientist and ecological consultant, Fern was able to explain the direct connections between the exploitation of indigenous people and the exploitation of land. The older that I get and the more that I understand, the more that I see the social and power struggles overlapping and crossing with the environmental destruction and takeovers. Where you see environmental degradation and where you see the impacts of these kind of things, uh, it does seem to fall more on minority and marginalized communities. She spoke specifically about the impacts of oppression on Hawaii. In the times prior to colonization, we were a flourishing landscape where Hawaiians had an incredible model of how to manage land from a watershed base, where it's basically like an what we call an ahupua'a, which is from ridge to ridge line and everything in between that encompasses the stream or the watershed. And within those water sh- watersheds, water was not consumed in a way that was wipe out the system in the stream, but was, you know, diverted slightly used and went back clean into the system. And so throughout that Hawaiians had incredible edible landscapes that basically like covered from mountain to ocean, it, beautiful edible ecosystems. And all of that was was destroyed with the diversion of the stream systems, and all of that was destroyed with the leveling of everything for sugar. We'll return to the topic of environmental racism later. But before looking at the impacts of invasion on land, I'd like to return to talking about how savage invaders were to the people who were living there, acting as stewards of a sustainable and flourishing ecosystem. As I speak about those who are, or whose ancestors were, native inhabitants of now-colonized land, you'll hear me use the word indigenous. And if you're wondering why that is... We push back on language like Native American, right? Because we predate America. So how can we be Native American when we predate the idea of America 
by centuries. Our elders will say that we've been here since time immemorial. We came out of the soil. Anthropologically speaking, the anthropologists that we've been here for calculated between 10,200 years and 11,000 years. So however you look at it, we are the first peoples of this land, but we're not Native American. America is just a really old colony. We didn't legitimately take you know, billions of, literally with a B, billions of acres of our land justifiably. They stole it through deception, murder. And, and any American Indian is wrong, right? Because we're not Indian. We're not from India. Christopher Columbus thought he got, you know, he was on his way to, you know, India and happened upon here. And no, we're not Indian. If you don't know the nation or the tribe that the individual is enrolled in, indigenous is best. But if you do know the tribe or nation, go with that. I prefer people say Simon Moya Smith, an enrolled citizen of the Ogala Lakota Nation. But if they don't, indigenous is best. Since Simon mentioned Christopher Columbus, let's talk about America's reverence of the directionally challenged racist. In 1492, when Columbus accidentally stumbled upon what he thought was India, there were an estimated 5 to 15 million indigenous people living on the continent now known as North America. By the later 19th century, less than 240,000 indigenous people remained. So how did that happen? Invaders slaughtered millions of indigenous people, raped indigenous women, stole indigenous children, and exposed native inhabitants to diseases towards which they had not acquired immunity. And they did so while painting indigenous people as pagan savages who must be killed in the name of quote-unquote Christian civilization. I mentioned there being a more authentic history than the one many of us were taught in school. What I didn't mention is that the vast majority, 87% of states, don't require indigenous history past the year 1900 in their curricula, and that because of the lopsided presentation of history and the inaccurate portrayal of indigenous people, many of us learn that the quote-unquote founding of America was a victory for human liberty when, in actuality, it was genocide. For instance, did your history teacher teach you that the U.S. government authorized over 1,500 wars, attacks, and raids on indigenous people, the most of any country in the world? Mine didn't. And something I find equally atrocious is that today these opportunities for disavowing false idolatry and hero worship and understanding history in a more comprehensive way are still being missed. I suppose this was around perhaps the end of the summer, at least in Philly, where we were talking about statue removal. There was the Rizzo statue and there's the Columbus statue. And I thought that that was a really interesting moment in time where we were talking about Lenape people again, right? Sort of that this was our land and this that matters and that we have monuments dedicated to people who have stolen it from us, right? And it also was a conversation of connection that we have Columbus, a sort of settler colonial statue and Rizzo often, uh, you know, it's perhaps controversial to say, but certainly is implicating a lot of anti-Blackness in the city, right? To sort of say, we need to remove these two people, these fixtures, what is that, what are we telling are the next generation, right? That these two people cannot be here anymore, cannot be visual uh, representations of the city anymore. So I think 
that's a moment in time where I was like, oh, I hope that we can get to a point where we are actively acknowledging and supporting Lenape people, right? Indigenous people in this, in this land, right? The ways in which we have persisted in spite of so many different things. I had hoped, you know, and, and perhaps naively, but certainly optimistically of, of re-establishing or remodeling our education system, because I think a lot of people in the city don't actually realize that it's Lenape territory. I don't know if a lot of people even know the name Lenape, right? As an actual thing. And part of that is because it's been eradicated from our education system. And so how do we reintegrate those things? Spoiler alert. Those things were not reintegrated. While the Columbus statue will, it seems, be removed eventually, Columbus Day remains a widely celebrated holiday, one which many celebrated just a few weeks ago. That's not to say that all Indigenous people ought to be lauded as heroes, all tribes celebrated and revered, or to disparage the positive contributions Italians have made to the history of this nation. But it is to say that invasion is not a thing of the past. It's ever-present. Native communities are still experiencing the negative ramifications of unchecked, unapologetic white supremacy that comes out in everything from erasure to murder. I raise awareness about violence against Indigenous women and also raise awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls uh, specifically. And I have known about violence against Indigenous women for a long time. I'm 32, but I remember being a little girl and seeing like uh, back home a big billboard with a young Native woman and it had a big picture of her face and it had her name and she had been missing for a while and, you know, her family was looking for her to come back home. So I grew up, you know, with like seeing this billboard of this, this woman who was, I think she was 16 at the time when she went missing and I was about 10 years old. So just kind of being aware that, you know, Native women go missing and um, there are really no answers for their families. As of 2016, the National Crime Information Center has reported 5,712 cases of missing Indigenous women and girls. Sadly and strikingly, by this same time, the U.S. Department of Justice Missing Persons database had only reported 116 cases. Here are some statistics that may shock you. Indigenous women and girls are murdered at a 10 times higher rate than other ethnicities. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women, and the majority of these murders are committed on Native-owned land by non-Native people. More than four out of five Indigenous women have experienced violence, and Indigenous women are two times more likely to be raped than Anglo-American white women. Despite awareness from all echelons of law enforcement, indigenous communities remain plagued by inordinately high rates of violence against their female-identified members. Tessa told me that lack of communication, poor data collection, and jurisdictional issues between federal, state, local, and tribal law enforcement agencies are part of why indigenous women and girls are falling victim to violence. A lot of violence occurs on or near reservations, and reservations are on federal lands. So the tribal police, which is under federal jurisdiction, 
And then, you know, if the violence occurs outside of the reservation, then that's within state boundaries. But then, you know, there's these jurisdiction issues like who handles the case? Is it the tribal police? Is it the state police? Is it the FBI? So there's just these different jurisdiction issues and there's a lack of collaboration between the partners or the entities and even the Department of Justice is aware of this and they're trying to alleviate some of those issues, but it's just taking forever. The other issue with data is if someone goes missing, you know, maybe the box of the American Indian, Alaska Native, maybe that box is not checked. So they're just an unidentified person that has gone missing. The biggest issues underneath all the other significant yet smaller logistical concerns are toxic masculinity and systemic racism. We find that these issues happen around man camps, which are like these energy camps, part of where they're doing like pipeline infrastructure um, and like these camps with like all men, you know, they're, they're not from the community. They're not from the area. They come in. They have no ties. They have no accountability. So we see the rates of violence higher in those areas. These guys are creating, you know, pipeline systems for us for our energy. So if we're all needing energy, then we're kind of all part of the problem. Tessa went on to explain that media coverage and public support are overtly different based on the race of the woman or girl who goes missing. A couple years ago, a young, like a teenage white female went missing in North Dakota and the amount of volunteers that showed up to to search you know the land for her was overwhelming like this huge amount of volunteers showed up and then in the same time frame this young woman Savannah she went missing and she's indigenous and she was seven or eight months pregnant and the amount of volunteers that showed up was underwhelming you know there weren't enough volunteers there Uh, was lack of coverage, you know. I think for the non-Indigenous person, there was a reward out for finding that young missing person. And, you know, with Savannah, there was no reward. So that's an example. That's devastating. Is it known what happened to Savannah? So Savannah was found. She was, I think, like in a ravine, like like a ditch or like water ravine. And it was her neighbors who had killed her and they stole her baby. So they murdered her because they wanted a baby. So this infant was, you know, cut out of the womb. And the neighbor, it was a couple, they, it was the woman who had created this plan and her partner went along with it. And that was in North Dakota. According to Tessa, and corroborated by all the data I could find, which was insufficient given the prevalence of this problem, The most dangerous places for Indigenous women and girls are adjacent to Indigenous reservations. Border towns, you know, you have reservations and then a non-Native town next door. And there's a lot of violence uh, there against, you know, the Indigenous population. And for me, I I still don't understand why that is, you know, why these non-Native towns are so um, discriminatory against the Indigenous populations. The question is rhetorical. It's obvious why. As part of the attempted annihilation of Indigenous people, invaders dehumanized them, depicting them as unworthy of empathy and devoid of humanity. 
That thought process was then passed on from generation to generation, and the bodies of indigenous women and girls are still being seized and violated in the same brutal ways that these men's ancestral forebearers once took and violated indigenous women and girls and indigenous land. Take for us to fight it To realize that we all are one Make unity and inner peace The only reason Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better Red, white, and blue There's still a correlation between abuse of land and the abuse of its indigenous female occupants. Another hot spot for trafficking is in um, northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, up in the Great Lakes area. Lake Superior has these barges that come in and they dock in Duluth, Minnesota, and Superior, Wisconsin, which are neighboring cities. And there's high rates of missing and murdered Indigenous women up in that area, too, because of, you know, they're trafficked out on these barges, which that's also a fossil fuel industry up there, up in the north. So, you know, I think um, these energy systems, you know, are related. So it's important to remember. It's also important to acknowledge that while Tessa is invested in these issues professionally and as an Indigenous person and a humanitarian, she also has a personal experience of losing a loved one to murder. One of my own relatives was murdered in 2016. So I just kind of come at this issue with my own feelings and my own experience. It was her former partner and, um, you know, it got listed as domestic violence. And he was charged in Canada under the Crown. Unfortunately, they told our family that you know, we are one of the lucky families who knows who did this to our, our family member. But the court system was very lenient on him just because of some of that dehumanization that his family grew up with and the impacts of colonization affected his judgment, they said. So for our family, you know, we're grateful that we know who did it and, you know, they were charged and they are in prison, but just um, not quite happy that they were very lenient on him, and he'll be released very soon. The Canadian judicial system acknowledged the impact of colonization and dehumanization on the perpetrator. But what about those who are on the receiving end of that generational dehumanization? There's a study that was released by Illumin Natives, and in partnership with the Native Organizers Alliance and the Center for Native Youth, and it's hacked the, of the respondents. There's like over 6,000 respondents. It was a really unique survey in that it was um, created by Native organizations for Native people. And out of the respondents, like one of the things that was cited most across all of the different demographics was really support and improvement of mental health. And this was in this year of 2020, we we're thinking about everything that we know now about just the toll that this pandemic's taking, the toll of the different 
racial reckonings and like uprising, like this is an incredible year for us to acknowledge and also contend with the fact that, you know, like our mental health is being really challenged. Some of those challenges are the same challenges that people of all racial backgrounds have been experiencing. And some challenges are unique to those with a history of having been systematically and systemically subjugated on their own ancestral homeland, then having the descendants of the perpetrators who set out to steal their land, language, spirituality, culture, and resources, and are responsible for the murders of millions and millions of their ancestors, appropriate and mock what is sacred and special, while profiting off elements of indigenous identities. Facts and opinions aren't on the same level. Your opinion doesn't change how racist something is when people were making the argument well what's the big deal about you know the washington football team's name i'm not going to use the term itself it's derogatory and it's racist it doesn't change the name you know it doesn't like name of the washington football team means dead indians and just because people are like well i didn't mind it i don't care it's like well we don't care if you care what we care about are the facts and the facts are that means dead indian also it has been empirically proven that mascots native mascots harm the mental health and stability of children. So it's not about us trying to just like rain on everybody's parade or you know ruin their good time. No, we're we're fighting for the health and well-being of the next generation of children who are already suffering from intergenerational trauma. So much trauma and so many communities are impacted in their own unique yet all too similar ways. We're on, you know, Hawaiian stolen lands that were illegally occupied by the United States, um, actually it's about to be the anniversary of the illegal overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii, January 17, um, 1893, the kingdom was overthrown and, you know, Hawaiian people were really marginalized in their own communities. And we were uh, taken advantage of. Uh, the companies that came in exploited the land, exploited the people. Many of our People are, you know, that lived there and worked in those mines still are suffering from multi-generational impact from the exposure to the uranium. I remember somebody referring to Rapid City as the south of the north because it's just so hostile to indigenous people. They are very aggressive and blame Indians for everything. Racism against indigenous people may not be obvious in places like Manhattan or Brooklyn or East Los Angeles, but it is pretty prevalent in places right off the reservation um, in many different states, especially in the West. It's extremely dangerous, especially for Indigenous people. As I mentioned, with murder to missing Indigenous women, police yeah. brutality in Indian country, intergenerational trauma, which can lead to you know depression, substance abuse, suicide, domestic yeah. violence. Those things are real things. And now on top of that, we have this raging pandemic through Indian country. So can you talk a little bit about how COVID-19 is impacting Indigenous populations differently? Yeah, it's decimating Indigenous uh, communities, um, specifically places like the Navajo Nation in uh, Arizona, because unfortunately, broad swaths of the, the res itself don't have running water or electricity. And as a matter of fact, it was proven, you know, this factually that Indigenous people, well, even the Navajo Nation, are the most impacted than anywhere else in the United States. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. 
As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com pages diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. A few weeks after my conversation with Simon, I spoke to Fern. She told me that one of the devastating impacts COVID-19 was having on Hawaiians was that it was revealing their lack of food sovereignty. She said that without imports, Hawaii only has about six days' worth of food to feed its inhabitants, and that even with that, there remains a disparity between those living in poverty and those with unmitigated privilege. We also have all kinds of, of issues now in the fact that we've become this destination for the ultimate rich. And so you see in third, three generations in, um, the people that were born and raised here having very little opportunity to ever own their own home or have any kind of security um, in their homeland. Because, you know, even since COVID, our property prices have gone up um, on the North Shore of our island, which was already hugely overpriced and all locals were pretty much priced out of about 30, 40, 50 years ago. 
you saw a 290% increase in prices. We're in this real like accelerated period of being bought out of house and home. <laughs> that goes all the way back to the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii. One of the things that drove home the ideological problem of an individualistic mentality was thinking about the reality that while rich, mostly white, business moguls used the pandemic as an excuse for a tropical getaway and other people were dying of COVID unable to feed themselves and their families deprived of access to basic medical care, running water and electricity, those with means were checking out while those without continued to act on behalf of the larger American populace. They turned out to vote for Joe Biden. 89% of the people vote turned out from the Navajo Nation. So here are sick people that are inflicted by this, this pandemic, but they still did their part to make sure that, there is, that the nation goes in a different direction away from this orange menace. There are fundamental differences in the thought patterns that underlie the philosophy of fierce individualism and the ways of thinking that existed prior to the existence of America, ways of thinking that support sustainability and social responsibility. There's been a difference in ideology since the first white man stumbled our way. You know, that's why in my language, in the Oglala Lakota language, uh, we don't have a word for white man. There was no white people, so there was no word for it. So we describe them, and um, in our language, they're called washichu, and washichu just means greedy. So they were the, the greedy people. There was never enough land, never enough gold, never, uh, never enough women, never enough, um, I guess, indoctrination or, you know, this Bible black attempt to make us white Christians through their campaign called Kill the Indian, Save the Man, right? So there wasn't enough bodies, whether they were dead bodies or bodies to be stolen away from, or children to be stolen away from their parents and thrown into these schools where they were, you know, beaten physically, but also with these Bible verses and punished for speaking their languages, you know, needles through the tongue, things like that. During my time at school, instead of being told about invaders putting needles through the tongues of indigenous children, I was given glossy history textbooks that depicted indigenous people as little more than a footnote. Yeah, sure, a couple of my teachers made casual mention of Wounded Knee or the Trail of Tears, but they provided no context, no emotion, and no empathy. I would never have known that there was a history underneath the history with which I was being indoctrinated if I hadn't sought it out myself. When I asked Morgan Ridgway about that, they pointed out that colonial culture has infiltrated academia. Academic institutions, and, that, and that's a broad sense, right? That's, that's libraries, that's schools. We're talking college, high school, middle school, like all sorts of, of education institutions, they function on these kind of meta narratives, right? That, that there's a progression of history. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the dominant culture. And that is all orbited around whiteness, right? And a particular type of whiteness that has access to money. And so those institutions repeat themselves, replicate themselves based on other people being subjugated or other people being told they don't fit, right? Because if other people are said they don't fit, that must mean the dominant culture is true, right? Or is accurate or can be uncontested because you sort of eradicate difference to a certain degree. Jacqueline noted this same phenomenon in a slightly different context. 
So I worked in museums, particularly in the beginning part of my career for about 11 years. The latter half of that time, like I was in museum administration and museums themselves are colonial spaces, right? Like they are born out of this tradition of exhibiting the other in ways that have been at times extractive, exploitative, exotified. And even though I was working in a much more progressive institution, those undercurrents were still there. I had the experience at one point of inviting my family to an exhibit opening and my brothers not being allowed to let in because they were wearing tall tees. Um, and that was considered by the security guards as not something that was acceptable. And there was, I guess, was no way in their minds that they could actually be a guest on my list or, or a guest of the museum for that evening. And so these are all things that played into this space. Um, of making it really hard, isolating, difficult to experience institutional racism, even in a place that I love um, to, to try to make change and shift was something that was really difficult. It taught me a lot about the ways that museums are flawed. If museums are flawed and schools refuse to teach us what we need to know, what's left? I believe that culture is one of our most powerful gifts. And, and this is like for all people. So not just specifically for indigenous people, but really thinking about the way that our culture can really help us build bridges. And that so much of that expression of culture comes through like an artwork. Those I interviewed spoke about art being an invitation to reimagine the past as well as a catalyst to do something in the present. The textbooks that we have are narratives in a really specific sense, and they're incredibly contained and confined. And so the work of art is to kind of leech, right? It's to kind of bleed past the boundaries. It's to, to imagine a different world. And I think for a lot of non-white people, especially Black and Indigenous folks, where our histories are a lot of times histories of expulsion, histories of, of of violence, of, of murder, of all sorts of things, that we have to have tools and methods to imagine different worlds, different possibilities. And I think poetry and dance and music, painting, visual arts are, are those places that we can do that kind of work to go beyond the, the stories that we're told and to say there's another story underneath here. It was part of an international ex exhibition in Santa Fe. It's the, the third biennial. Yeah. And the curator is from West, from Spain, and she you know, curated all of these artists that represent countries. And I was one of three American artists and the only Native uh, person. So, you know, it gave me a, a, a wonderful opportunity to also remind them that I'm not only am I a U.S. citizen, but I'm also a citizen of my Spokane nation. So in the programming and everything, I always ask them to also include my tribal nation as part of my identifying. <laughs> and the overall title was called um, Looking yeah. for a Place. I'm going like, okay, so I'm, to create a piece within the theme of looking for a place, gosh, that doesn't really make sense to a Native person who I know where I come from. And this place, every inch of America is Indigenous. So what I did was I created a piece um, 
If, have you been to Santa Fe? Uh, no, I have not. No. So in the middle of the plaza, it's gone now, but there was a historic obelisk that was dedicated in 1886. So before the turn of the century to celebrate, you know, and acknowledge uh, soldiers. So it was called Sol the Soldiers Monument. And on one panel, it said to the heroes who died in various battles with savage Indians. So that was the panel and it was facing the palace of the governor because at this time, this was not a state, but a, um, you know, basically part of the, the um, territory of Spain. So um, to the heroes who died in various battles with savage Indians is what the panel said on the obelisk. And so in 1974, during the Wounded Knee uh, occupation, um, there were uh, people who were passing through town on their way to Wounded Knee, went in and chipped off the word savage. But it's still to this day, you know, until it was taken down, said to the heroes who died in various battles with, and it's chipped out, ch -ch -ch, savage. And, you know, but most people know what that, what it said originally. So in my recreation, so I recreate this monument and I put it in front of the roundhouse, which is the state capital of New Mexico. And in my piece, it looks exactly like the obelisk, but the only thing that is inscribed in my particular piece is savage. So it just has savage really big on the front of it. And then around the base, it says to the heroes, to the heroes, to the heroes, to the heroes. So the state legislators who are going to work recognize it, that it's a recreation of the obelisk. And they're going like, all right, to our heroes, they say. And then they realize because I'm getting an awful lot of press that it's a native woman who's making it. So it caused them to think, wait a minute, who are the heroes and who are the savages? They start to ask me. And my response to them is it depends on who's telling the story. One of many forms of violence perpetrated against Indigenous people in the United States has been the ongoing attempts to eradicate the stories of Indigenous people. In 1887, J.D.C. Atkins, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and I'm using that terminology because that was the actual government-sanctioned name at the time, banned speaking in native languages in mission schools. Children were not allowed to speak in their mother tongues, and their missionary teachers were prohibited from instructing in it. This meant that even on native land, indigenous people were to be taught only in English. And this was again on land that was supposed to be protected. But U.S. government policies set out to systemically and systematically eradicate the indigenous language with the same ruthlessness with which America's colonizers had previously set out to eradicate indigenous people. Since the coming of colonizers, native people have been punished for their expressions of self and culture, including the Wounded Knee Massacre, during which U.S. soldiers killed nearly 300 indigenous people simply because they were dancing. There was no written language prior to colonization and missionaries who taught a, a lot of people like how to read and write, really. There was, there was not that. The Hawaiian language was entirely passed down 
orally, which is why so many Hawaiians that do know their culture and do know their stuff can actually chant back to the creation of where they come from. But, but when you think about an oral language being banned for a hundred years, you think about, you know, it gives me chills every time I talk about it because you, you know, it, it's hard to deny that stuff would have been lost. It's hard to deny that, that in an oral language where families were you know, banned those communications. And then, you know, obviously like many other places where indigenous cultures were taken over, you saw smallpox and you saw death and you saw disease, you know, run rampant through the society. And, and you combine those kind of things, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, handfuls of families held on to these practices and stuff that's been, you know, passed on through closets for some of these years, like in, in, in back doors and in secret. The, the reality is we don't, like a lot of us don't know certain stories or, or have difficulty accessing certain stories. And certainly, you know, like I don't speak our language and, and that's something that the more that I do this work in history, the more that weighs on me as a, as a person because it, it is a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to speak your own people, right? And to not have that because of all these other things is, is, is really difficult history to reconcile. My grandmother was not only a fluent speaker and, and, and a uh, culture keeper, meaning that you know, my grandmother was a storyteller and the storytellers within our traditions are the educators because they're not simple stories. They really are embedded with lessons about geology and about history, about morality, about, you know, everything is sort of embedded in these stories. And they are so important within our traditions that they're passed down generation to generation, largely unchanged. These stories were it was part of her responsibility to pass it on to the next generation. Of course, that change happened drastically with the colonization and the host reservation system, you know, where, um, because if it's passed down generation to generation unchanged, it's in the spoken tribal language, right? When my mother, uh, who is a fluent speaker, was put into a school system that discouraged her from speaking her own language and acknowledging her own influences uh, because that was all discouraged because it was thought to, you know, be a hinder for us to progress and to be fully Americanized. And it got broke then because my mother was put into a, a school system that was trying to erase the language, erase the culture, the stories, all the things that make us who we are. Our dance, our ceremony it was illegal. My mother was a fluent speaker, but because she was discouraged from speaking it and teaching it, you know, if we lose our language, then we, you know, become just like other people of color in this country, right? You know, we've been stripped of the things that make us who we are. And there's much, many of our stories that can't truly be understood when we speak it in English. Charlene continued. I'm not a fluent speaker. I only know some. I have a good ear for it. Yeah. But because I've lived away from it for so long, it's, you know, it's going to take me a while to kind of get back to a place where I feel comfortable even speaking some of it. This attempt to steal the stories of Indigenous people 
was part of the attempt to eradicate their individual and collective consciousness. Because, as Charlene put it, We are a people that is connected by culture and by stories and by blood. White supremacy tried to spill that blood through violence, to subjugate the rich cultural practices, and to strip Native people of their stories. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. As a non-Indigenous person, the only thing I can offer is a platform for others to share their stories. Spoiler alert, this won't be what you learned in school, and it won't be linear. I think we're taught, um, certainly in this country, to kind of think that the past is sterile, is somehow like just points on a timeline that it doesn't have the same kind of emotional capacity that we have in the present. And I think the best thing you can do as a historian to kind of disrupt the system is to refuse linearity. Let's start by unpacking one of America's most widely celebrated holidays. Well, because I'm a conscious person and anybody who's conscious of their own history, whether you're native or non-native, you know, this is our collective history, right? This thing called Thanksgiving. Um, you know, if you're conscious and you know your history, you know that, that what we're actually celebrating is the genocide of a people. I always struggle with this, you know, because my husband is non-native. And so we always have, you know, that side of the family that want to have the big gatherings. But, you know, <laughs> I like the foods of Thanksgiving and I like the gathering of, of people. But I... I boycott this. I don't have that dinner on Thanksgiving. It's just my own personal boycott of of the holidays. I I don't participate it within my own home. So on the East Coast, it's called the uh, National Day of Mourning. And on the West Coast, it's called Day of Unthanksgiving. Some Indigenous peoples, actually a lot of Indigenous peoples, uh, across the U.S. and even in Canada, they have a different Thanksgiving. But they it's a day not to sit around piss and moan it's it's an opportunity to celebrate our uh continued sovereignty it's it's a way to celebrate our resiliency we use that day to celebrate our our languages our culture but also the millions and millions of people who have died as a result of aggressive uh settler invasion and i think that we have to 
remember that the narrative of Thanksgiving is bullshit. It's you have to remember that <laughs> you've been indoctrinated to believe that there's this kind of flowery story between the pilgrims and the Indians when it was actually invaders who were very brutal, very um, vicious toward indigenous people. And even back a couple of years ago on NPR, and a lot of people don't know, they were also cannibals. They don't know that narrative. So I facetiously said, if you really want to celebrate Thanksgiving, you're going to have to start by eating Uncle Jim. It might be disgusting, but it's accurate. Many of the European invaders who came to this quote-unquote new world were hoping to strike gold and get rich. So they arrived here and began digging for gold. They didn't plant crops. Yes, as you've likely heard, indigenous people helped invaders to stave off starvation by sharing food and other resources. But what you may not have been aware of is that as these literal gold diggers were scavenging the earth for treasure, they'd come upon the burial sites of deceased indigenous people, rob their graves of any jewelry or belongings, and eat them. I don't remember seeing cannibalism as part of any elementary school reenactments of colonial history. And speaking of which, can we please stop with those plays? Those Thanksgiving plays are the first, I mean, honestly, if you're a, an American kid, one of the first lessons you're going to learn in the U.S. is that it's okay to play another race. And you learn it through the Thanksgiving play, and you have authority figures like mommy, daddy, principal, vice principal, teacher, all of them just cheering you on as you're playing another race. And then they grow up to be in their 20s, and they're caught playing Indian again, or they're caught in, they're, they're caught in blackface. There are dots to be connected. Here are some other dots to connect. We're currently in Indigenous Peoples Month. On the fourth Thursday of this month, or the second Monday of October for those who live in Canada, if you're a resident of a place that celebrates Thanksgiving, there's a question you can ask yourself. What do you intend to do to be in a non-exploitative relationship with the millions of people who were murdered? It's important for people to maybe reevaluate what they know about Thanksgiving. Reevaluation requires engaging with the truth. And sadly, many of those responsible for reporting the truth underestimate the American public. They think we can't handle knowing what actually happened or what's still happening. It's like, you know, mainstream white media, legacy media, the perpetuation of things that are false, that are wrong. So to give you an example, uh, I'm a journalist, but yet when I write a Thanksgiving piece, unless it's in the opinion section, I can't refer to them as invaders. I have to refer to them as settlers and colonists, or my editor will change me, change the language that I used, even though I'm factually accurate. And as journalists, that's our job. Our job is to report the facts, and the facts are that they invaded indigenous territory. That's demonstrably proven. That has been uh, documented left and right, but still, in American newsrooms, whose responsibility, which is, is to report the facts, I can't report that fact in a straight, uh, obje objective piece. Here are some more straight, objective facts. The United States and Canada were both founded by people who stole our land. And the way that they did that a lot is just, you know, just by taking, by stealing, by killing, by dehumanizing us, comparing us to dogs, or calling us savages, or 
um, just saying that we weren't equal, that we weren't humans. There are reports where they say like, we're not intelligent. We didn't own the land. So therefore we had no concept of property or, um, you know, that's what allowed them to, to steal our land. So I think that dehumanization has been passed down for generations. And, you know, even 500 years later, we're still um, experiencing that. There is government policy, U.S. government policy designed to make Native people disappear. You know, the forced assimilation uh, policies, the termination policies. Indigenous women are 2.5 times more likely to be sexually assaulted than women of any other demographic. Indigenous peoples per capita are more likely to die at the hands of police than any other demographic, but that's because of our small population, right? More black bodies are murdered, more black people are killed by police. But because we're the smallest racial minority, these white cops, especially you know around reservations, are extremely brutal. They watch the same John Wayne Westerns that their dad did. So there's this demonization of indigenous people, which is also perpetuated by sports mascots. You know, it's always this aggressor. You know, we're not, you know, so you have to never underestimate the influence of influence. There's a lot of history, like where I'm here today in Hanapepe, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, plantation history of uprisings uh, where people were fighting for social justice. And the, the Fasayan Filipinos, particularly that were on Kauai, stood up really strong in the early 1920s. And um, it led to a standoff, a protest, a, a strike that resulted in, in what they call the Hanapepe Massacre, where some of the protesters, about 16 of the protesters, were um, murdered and shot by basically, at the time we were a U.S. territory, uh, we weren't yet a state, but the sheriffs and, um, and basically some hunters that were deputized for this purpose to control the plantation uh, strikers. Unfortunately, so common amongst all all Native people have this as part of their history within their own families, where the deliberate efforts to erase Native nations. There are only two states that have comprehensive K-12 Native education, like in, in the entire country, right? And yet all of this land was Indigenous land, is Indigenous land, and will continue to be Indigenous land. We're the smallest racial minority in our ancestral land. Something worth noting is that even as each of these six individuals were sharing their wisdom and insight, even when reporting factual, verifiable information, each of them made sure I knew they could only speak from their own perspective. I don't speak for everybody, but I have very strong opinions about stuff that are based on Things that have happened to me and happened to my, you know, family. Not every native can speak for other tribes, right? We're separate. We're separate sovereign nations. But also, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a chef. I'm not an astronaut. Not a teacher. You know, high school teacher. I'm not a doctor. You know, it's like there are natives out there that can answer specific questions, especially with their communities and their profession. As part of her profession as a consultant and a curator of culture belongings. Jacqueline has, at times, found herself in the unwanted role of representative. And I'm just curious, how do you personally reconcile being an Indigenous person, and that's a category that's like a large umbrella, but then also you have this very unique and particular experience and are part of a smaller culture within that. So like, how do you kind of navigate those things? 
it can feel at times like a little bit of like walking like a tightrope because like you're completely right. I can only speak from an I perspective when I'm speaking from my lived experience as a Dina person, right? And and even that like as a Dina cis like woman, like that there's so much about my identity still that like has has like power and privilege and like the education that I was able to achieve, like all of that, like is still wrapped up into that. And so being cognizant of it. And then simultaneously where like, especially when you're in a space and I was on staff, but even now, like I can come into particular advisory positions and still feel this sense of, you know, you're the spokesperson for folks and you're like, actually like I'm not. And like, that is like such a dangerous position to place people in and one that's like really exhausting, like it's unsustainable. What is sustainable? I think in terms of a tactic that I tend to choose and wear and one that has been sustainable for me comes from the place of like being grounded in like who I am, somebody who is walking the tightrope. Hi listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. I promise to return to the topic of land. And sustainability, or lack thereof, is something that has come more and more into mainstream American consciousness. But care for the land has always been inextricably woven into indigenous ideologies. In speaking about colonizers' perspectives versus indigenous ones, here's what Simon told me. It's a huge bifurcation in the ideologies, right? We saw land as a relative. We saw the animals as relatives. We saw the water, the air. I mean, we knew that, and we still know today, that the earth does not need us. We need the earth. So we don't hold dominion over it, right? So it's like very not, it's it's the Christian idea of that the earth is and the animals are to be subdued, right? For human, for man, for, and let's be honest, man meaning penis we didn't see it that way and we still don't see it that way. You know, we're supposed to walk gently on the land because it's a living, the earth is a living relative and you have to show the earth and the water and the animals that respect. Even if we hunt, it wasn't for fun. It was just like all people at some point was for survival, for warmth, for food. So we showed it that respect. We thanked it for its, its hide, for its coat, for its meat, for its bones We thanked it because it sacrificed itself for us. Tessa said, I just would hope that people would consider like energy resources that we use, how we treat people, you know, contributes to this issue. It's true. Today, just as it was for America's quote unquote founding forebearers, the decimation of land is often linked to the dehumanization of the people who occupy it. When I say environmental racism, I need to, sometimes I need to clarify it for people. Environmental racism means, for example, 
when they had proposed the Keystone XL pipeline originally, they were going to run the pipeline through Bismarck, North Dakota, which is predominantly white. Well, the community, the white people in that town voted that it was too close. They didn't want, you know, aesthetic. They didn't want to see too many, you know, earth movers. Also, they didn't want to run the chance of it breaking and affecting their water supply. So they said, go put it down by the Indians. So that's called environmental racism. You see, you know, ongoing generational oppression where you see Hawaiians surrounded by some of the, the higher concentrated areas of test crops and research centers for biotechnology. Fern conducted our interview from a project site. She zoomed in from the front seat of her truck. Behind her, I could see the place that for many is considered a bucket list destination. And it was with this view in the background that I listened to her speak about the ramifications of unchecked privilege. The impacts, the 150-year plantation impacts, completely reshaped the landscape. Our native ecosystems were completely wiped out. Being raised in Hawaii, like I'm blessed to grow up in places where we have incredible landscapes, incredible waterfalls, beautiful, rich oceans, and and the concern for and the you know and the the visual you know reckoning that these areas are being slowly impacted and watching streams dry up in my in my community and and watching reefs collapse and die-offs happen and. And, and all of this brought me full circle to my real passion of restoring the native ecosystems and what that loss means for a culture that is so connected to the earth uh, in their religious and, and spiritual senses. And so to have the loss of the forest or loss of what represents so much to Hawaiians is also a form of oppression. You know, the, the taking over of the land and the destruction of the waterways and the rediversion of our streams that now, you know, some of which run dry to accommodate for the diversion of these streams for colonialized infrastructure that really suppresses the Hawaiian people and marginalize them in their own homes and made us completely unfood sovereign. So, you know, now we, we, here we are 150 years later, we, we went from producing more food on Kauai that would feed many more of our people than our population holds today to being so dependent that we only have about a six day shelf life of food and we import 90% of our food to um, an abundant place where we should have enough water and food to be able to provide for our people. So you see the perpetuation of marginalization through the conquering of environmental land grabs and, and destruction and wiping out of our resources and, and making us dependent on a foreign system that really strips us of any ability to go back to sovereignty. Living on an island, dealing with an island, we have very limited resources. I mean, our trash issue is like next level, right? So like they built this Keikawa landfill, which is like a, on the sea level that would be totally impacted by a tsunami and is um, and they just keep building up. So we literally are have a, a mountain of trash instead of a hole of trash. We have a mountain of trash that's kind of just builds and builds and builds. And with food, I mean, everything that you can see in as far as the landscape is or surrounding me is so heavily modified that there's not even one native plant. Everything that you see at sea level is an invasive species because the entire ecosystem has been wiped out. And then here we are, the wettest place in the world, literally the wettest place in the world, access to great water. And, you know, our groundwater is contaminated by 100 years of pollution. So there's all these like, even though Hawaii had some of this, Hawaii, the kingdom of Hawaii had incredible um, laws about water protection and public trust rights and access, 
a lot of that just goes ignored by the occupying you know government and so because of that the rivers are still diverted so like 40 million gallons of water a day is diverted from this Waimea system if you're wondering what happened to Hawaii as a result of this white man system at one point our entire island was basically a plantation and every single thing that was plantable and levelable or clearable was cleared for sugar and pineapple mostly After my conversation with Fern, I was inspired to learn more, and then more, and then more about Hawaii. I discovered that Native Hawaiian is a racial classification, and that Hawaii is named after its indigenous people. Therefore, living in Hawaii doesn't make you Hawaiian. It makes you a resident of Hawaii. I learned that the first recorded Western contact with Hawaii was in 1778, when Captain James Cook, an English explorer, sailed into Waima Bay on Kauai. Prior to Cook's arrival, it is estimated that between 400,000 and as many as 1 million Native Hawaiians were living on the major Hawaiian islands. Within a century after he first landed, the Native Hawaiian population had been decimated, dropping down to about 40,000, which means that 90% of the population died, and most of those deaths can be attributed to the diseases brought by European invaders. Even after this invasion through contagion, Hawaiians remained resilient. Hawaii was an independent sovereign nation with an internationally recognized monarchy and remained part of the global economy, entering into bilateral treaties of trade and friendship with numerous other countries until more than 100 years after that first European arrival. Then, on January 17, 1893, A group of American sugar planters, aided by 300 United States Marines and with the foreknowledge of the U.S. minister to Hawaii, illegally overthrew Hawaii's government. No doubt you're familiar with Dole Pineapples? Well, the businessman and sugar planter behind the illegal overthrow was Sanford Dole, who some refer to as a sugar baron. Sanford's cousin, James Dole, sometimes called the Pineapple King, began the pineapple industry in Hawaii. Something Fern didn't mention in our interview, but which I'd be remiss in not mentioning to you, is that America used and continues to use Hawaii for its Pacific fleet. During World War II, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, the Hawaiian people and the Hawaiian ecosystem was severely impacted. And it wasn't just the bombing itself that was detrimental. In the wake of the attack, the U.S. government placed Hawaii under strict military rule. Using the rationale that roughly a third of Hawaiian residents possessed Japanese ancestors, FBI agents rounded up and arrested more than 2,000 people in the first 48 hours alone. Then the military took control of Hawaiian labor, the army imposed a strict curfew, habeas corpus was suspended, and trial by jury was temporarily abolished. Hawaii remained under military rule for almost three years. The ideologies that claim to support and advance personal freedom, autonomy, and self-reliance have serious consequences. They've cost people, communities, and the environment, and they continue to destroy. 
That's not to say there's not value in the traditions and cultures that invaders brought with them to the now United States. But it is to say that the exertion of those influences by force and the attempts to eradicate what already existed has been devastating for people of color and for white people, too. Later in the season, we'll be talking about the internal alienation, pain, and violence that are the inevitable consequences of self-centered, heteronormative, white supremacist thinking. But I want to leave you with the promise that there is another way, a more sustainable way, a way that communities of color have long practiced. Here's what Morgan had to say about colonialism. There's no possible way to survive that onslaught by yourself. And I think something that sort of threads through a lot of different history narratives of Blackness, of, of Indigenous people, is community and collaboration and gatherings because it was in, like, everything else said that your body shouldn't exist. Everything else told you or forced you into a kind of nothingness. And so our communities develop because out of necessity, and there's a beauty in that, Join me next week for an in-depth exploration of the beauty and resilience of Indigenous communities and the individuals that comprise them. It could be you. It could be me. What can we do to keep the peace? Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Morgan Lee Ridgway, Simon Moya-Smith, Charlene Teeters, Tessa McLean, Jacqueline Russell, and Fern Holland. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Elise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Kraintz, our production and development assistant, and Sonny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world. <laughs>